Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy Denise Chisholm is back on the program to lay out what economic factors are driving the markets, what could be contributing to an optimistic view of the markets, and what sectors to keep an eye on at this time. Denise speaks to host Brian Borsakowski about the current market landscape. She notes that things seem to be leveling off, the regional banking situation has cooled down, so is the market looking more optimistic? For Denise, those are not necessarily predictive factors of optimism. So when investors say the market is overly optimistic, Denise says from the things she can measure, she is not seeing that trend. What she is seeing is the negative sentiment she can measure is persistent in this cycle, which is quite different than any other time in the past, and that is actually more of a bullish setup than bearish. Denise adds we are off cycle in this cycle, and we are seeing something very different with inflation than what we saw in the 1970s. So how should investors position themselves and their portfolios at this time? Denise notes to keep an eye on on economically sensitive sectors or defensive sectors, which include consumer staples, utilities, and to a lesser extent, healthcare. This podcast was recorded on April 27, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with uh, kind of how you're viewing the markets today. This feel like things are getting a little bit more optimistic among maybe the general investors. Inflation in Canada last week, it was announced, was down about uh, 4.3% year over year. Um, You know, interest rates may be leveling off. What is your view based on the data you're seeing? Yeah, it's interesting when you think about the data as opposed to what people think that the market thinks. I always think that that's interesting think that you know what the entirety of the market thinks, but I get that question a lot. Isn't the optimism, right? There has been some relatively better news flow with some, you know, better GDP. It could be decelerating inflation and the banking crisis seems to be not quite as much of a potential fire as maybe investors have thought. So there's a little bit of good news and many investors are thinking, well, that's already all all baked into the market. Isn't the market so optimistic? We're up however much we are up year to date, which I think is like 8%. Off the bottom, off the lows that we saw in October, that's we're up 18%. The NASDAQ is 20%. So a lot of people point to that as the market is already baking in good news. And in fact, maybe we should be thinking about more bad news. And another way they think about it is the market's already at 20 times earnings. All of those things, to me, are not necessarily predictive of optimism. So when you think about short-term performance, what is really predictive has been that the market went down over the course of the last year. That's actually the rarity. And that is part of what is different this cycle is that we've already seen a down market. And in fact, last year, we saw many stocks down 50, 60, 70 percentage points, right? That's rare in a euphoria 
right before a recession. So, and even when you look at sort of the multiple aspect of it, 20 times to me, again, if you just drop me in and said, evaluate this on a quantitative basis, 20 times is not particularly expensive or cheap, right? It's about median levels. We have the data going back to the 1930s. And even regardless of whether or not you say it's expensive or cheap, usually that isn't particularly predictive. And we saw this very clearly during the financial crisis where stocks bottom from a multiple perspective at 10 times earnings, right? That seems very cheap. That is not when you wanted to buy them. In fact, stocks fell 30% more going into the bottom of the financial crisis where they bottomed from a multiple perspective at 15 times earnings. So you could be seeing a little of that now. What we saw is during the October low, stocks were actually bottoming on 15 times earnings or stocks that was currently the trough. And now we've re-rated towards 20 times. And while that seems illogical, that's usually what the market does. When earnings come down, multiples offset. And that's been a consistent message through history and it's really no different this time. But back to the sort of sentiment, well, if if when you look at all of those either short-term performance or the multiple, and that's not really predictive of sentiment, there are ways that you can actually measure sentiment. A lot of the sentiment indicators look like this. I think this is market veins consensus that has really remained around recessionary levels for the better course of this past year. We saw these levels in the financial crisis. We saw these during the last recession. Um, what you see you know, during the pandemic, so what you see is sentiment has remained negative, despite the fact that we've had somewhat of an economic recovery, at least in a, in a nominal sense over the last two years. And what you find is that that's very contrarian bullish. So when investors have negative sentiment towards the market, what you actually find is a very monotonic distribution. The more negative they are, the more likely it is that stocks advance despite the fact that there is actually bad news on the horizon. So there's a little bit of what's different this time. So when I hear investors say, well, isn't the market overly optimistic? I say, you know, in the things that I can measure, I am not seeing that trend. What I'm actually seeing is negative sentiment that you can measure, and it's particularly persistent this cycle, which is quite different. And that's actually more of a bullish setup for, than a bearish one. So that's interesting. So uh, it does feel as, uh, you know, we started off, yeah, people feel optimistic, but are you finding that, I mean, do people just think people are optimistic or when the conversations that you're having, do people feel optimistic or are they bearish, um, you know, based on kind of what you're talking about? How do you feel in the conversations you're having? What are people saying? Yeah, my conversations are interesting, right? And you should never say that the entire market is Denise Chisholm's conversations. But I will say that I get more questions about my bullish construct than I do anything else. Meaning that I don't hear a lot of investors talking like me. Well, a lot of the questions I get are, Denise, there's so much bad news out there. How could you possibly be so optimistic and in some ways want to be interested in the equity market overall and sort of be interested in more economically sensitive sectors with it? Aren't we on the cusp of a recession? So a lot of those are the questions that I get. So I, the people that I talk to, I don't get a whole lot of optimistic sentiment when I have a conversation with investors at Fidelity. <laughs> So let, let's go through some of the charts that you have and, and maybe explain why, what you're seeing and why you think markets will advance um, from here. And if you look at that commitment to traders report, you'll see it's a net positioning for large speculators on the S&P 500. And what you can find is that we're right back down to bottom quartile net short positioning. 
And that's pretty rare when the market is optimistic, is that you'll see the more net short large speculators are, the more likely you are to have an up market. What you usually see is almost double digit returns over the next six months where your baseline average is more like five. So what you can see is the more bearish sentiment is, the more likely you are. Again, this is the math around the concept that investors know a lot about the wall of worry, right? So when are you more likely to climb that wall of worry? When indicators as measured like this are in this sort of bottom quartile. And I do get a lot that there's concern about, well, there's a sentiment indicator like the AAI II measure, which is a newsletter measure that is a weekly index that measures the number of bearish minus the number of bullish newsletters. And what you'll see is it resets very quickly. This is the same with the VIX, right? The VIX resets very quickly. So the way you need to look at those indicators to look for the signal within the noise, because you won't get a whole lot of noise in the distribution because of that reset. When you look, should I own stocks over the next one year time horizon for this one little snapshot? So the way you look at those indicators is, are they persistent or not? So for AAII, one of the ways is to look at what is the percentage of bulls in that overall survey, what you'll find is something pretty interesting, which is that we have remained at bottom quartile levels of bulls as measured by the AAII newsletter sentiment for about, I think it's 64 weeks. I shouldn't quote it exactly because I'm not entirely, that's leaps and bounds ahead of any other cycle that we've seen since the data started and I think it was 1990. So it is very different in the sense that yes, you might reset very quickly and come out of, you know, net bullish positioning, same way that the VIX is, I think, you know, close to either under 17 or below, even though it was 30. The number of days that we have spent with an elevated VIX level is still very, very persistent relative to prior occurrences that were sort of in a bullish market. And that's the way you measure that wall of worry. So it's not just the level that you can look at today, but it's that persistence of every time you get a little bit of a shock, how quickly do investors get bearish? And again, that's very, very different this cycle. We can see this even in the financial crisis and going in. You could actually measure some optimism in that 2000, let's call it, you know, five, six, seven on almost eight period until you got to, to the near lows of you know, late uh, 08 and obviously the lows in early 09. So it's a very, very different setup, the, the quantitative measures that I look at. Why is it so bearish? Uh, you know, which which might go against what some other people just, yeah, the headline data is showing. Why do you see those numbers as so bearish still and for so long? Yes, I think that, you know, if you had to boil it down to one thing, it's that inflation has been persistently sticky and the Fed's response to it is both unknown and aggressive, right? So there's a wide range of outcomes around that. And I think that that can also be measured in terms of the depths of recessions, uh, in terms of what investors have been used to, right? We're out, we're definitely out of our comfort as you measure sort of, you know, the baseline expectations of inflation, what we've seen from median basis is like two and a half since 1990 and one standard deviation would be like three and a half. We've been outside that range now for a full two years. Right, so this is not something that we've been comfortable with uh, in quite some time. But what you can see is that investors can get used to concepts over time. And I think the fact that inflation has been sticky does not mean that it will be sticky. And just because the Federal Reserve has been aggressive 
does not mean the Federal Reserve will continue to be aggressive. So, and what I see is actually a, a more persistent silver lining than many investors see. So if we step back for a second and just look at overall CPI, we'll stop, talk about overall CPI and then talk about the components of it and the stickiness. Overall CPI is doing what it normally does on a year-on-year -year basis. And it's actually consistent in terms of the deceleration with market bottoms we've seen during high inflationary times. And if anybody wants to chart, you should check them out on my LinkedIn. It doesn't really look that different than me. It certainly peaked and now is headed lower. Maybe it's not decelerating quite as rapidly as we would prefer it to, but it is certainly decelerating rapidly. And that gets to sort of the subcomponents of the CPI. There are certainly a lot of Federal Reserve board members that said, yeah, well, the overall CPI is coming down, but this core aspect is, is very sticky, right? And within that core aspect, there's one big part of it that's been sticky, and that's shelter. So let's just talk about shelter in a second, but let's think about everything else ex-shelter, right? So again, higher than we want it to be, but if I look at that deceleration that we've seen, in the last 20, in the last six months, or in, even in the last 12 months that we've seen, we've never decelerated this quickly on this measure. Again, everything else at core inflation, ex shelter, since the 1970s. And it's the only time we have decelerated this rapidly without a recession. Right? So we haven't even seen a rise in the unemployment rate. And inflation has decelerated outside the shelter component on a core basis, right? So not even food and energy more rapidly than ever in the course of history. And that's why I think a lot of cycle comparisons are quite off. We are off cycle this cycle and we are seeing something very different from inflation than we saw in the 1970s. And this is going to end up being very different from what we see out of the Federal Reserve, because ultimately at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve is just a group of individuals, whatever it is that they would like to do, but generally speaking, they tend to follow inflation trends. And what we are seeing is that that shelter component has really made core inflation quite sticky because it's a very lagged indicator. And that lagged indicator is, it's technically correct, right? It, it looks at all the rents in the overall economy, and it doesn't look at the new rents that are resetting right now to determine overall price levels for housing. But we know that ultimately that's going to true up to house prices that have decelerated rapidly. In some cases, they're falling. And, you know, that first time rent that you can actually measure that is also decelerating rapidly and somewhat falling. So what we've seen now is shelter, the component, whether or not it's primary rents, it's basically measured the same way or the owner's equivalent rents, 40 percent of the CPI has finally started to decelerate. So this is sort of a long-winded way of saying, look, we are seeing a silver lining in that inflation has been sticky, but it is looking a lot less sticky at a lot quicker rate than I think many investors are willing to give, which puts the Fed in a very different risk-reward position in the sense that we are already closer to the end of the tightening cycle. And we're sort of starting to debate, is it one more, is it two more? And I think that inflation over the course of the summer, if it continues to in the trends that, you know, we, we are seeing, that terminal rate is likely sort of, you know, in the zone of what the market is already expecting. So I, I think that that's actually a much, much better setup than what we were seeing last year. 
just just on inflation, um, there's also a lot of people who think that the Fed could actually cut rates. I think there was a market price in three three uh, rate cuts before the end of the year. Do you see that happening, um, given that inflation? Yeah, coming down, but I mean, still not in the um, you know the range yet. Yeah, don't know. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made that if inflation is coming down at a, at a more rapid clip, and I, I do think that that's the case just based on the six-month trend. So when I look at everything, again, X shelter I'm looking at an annualized run rate of around 2%, right? So the Fed, they're likely going to hike the next time that they meet, and that's about 5%, right? So that's a 3% real rate, right, relative to the run rate of inflation. That would suggest that's probably too high when you look at, at history. So that does argue that the Fed would be within its bounds to cut rates because inflation has been quelled. So you could certainly see that uh, play out like that. I think what's interesting is that many people think that that is sort of complacency in the overall market. I don't really look at that from a historical basis. Usually really aggressive Fed cuts are bearish signals, like you don't really want the Fed to be cutting aggressively. But at the same time, it doesn't always turn out like that. So there's a lot of nuance behind what the Fed does. And I think most investors, and look, I am sort of a, a, a lone dove in, the, in this camp. Most investors think that the Fed controls the overall economy and the overall market. I kind of the way I look at the data, it seems to me like they react to the overall economy and sometimes react to the overall market. So what those expectations are, they may change, right? And that might actually be a recessionary expectation. Hey, we in the fixed income market actually expect the Fed to be cutting aggressively because the economy is going to be in trouble. And that's sort of a bearish sentiment, right? And if that unwinds and say, oh, no, the Fed's only going to have to cut, you know, 25 to 50 basis points because because they can because of inflation. Well, that ends up being a much better situation for the market. So I think that there are a lot of ways for the Fed and inflation to play out going forward. And when I look at the data, they're not like smoking gun bearish or very clearly bullish, right? So I'm not sure that we necessarily need the Fed to pause. What we need is the Fed to not hike so aggressively when you look at it in the market. And what we need is inflation not to re-accelerate when we look at the historical data. And I think those two things are sort of coming together, which create a positive risk reward for the equity market, despite the fact that the news isn't going to get any better overnight. Right. Okay. So then what should investors do? If, if, this, if the sentiment you're seeing is bearish, I guess, number one, does that mean people think the market's going to fall? You're saying it, it's actually you know, going to increase over the next uh, 12 months. So how should investors handle this? What should they do with their portfolios? Yeah, so it's definitely interesting, right? So uh, I'm more comfortable being an equity market investor because you know the fact that you kind of have to buy bad news and you kind of have to sell good news. Um, and the odds are not perfectly symmetrical, but I'm a little bit more comfortable buying that bad news slash uncertainty than most investors are. But what I think that when you think about within a portfolio and you think about relative performance, what works and what doesn't work, even if I take out the market, right? So maybe I'm not right on the market. 
Where I think that the margin of safety is, is in economically sensitive sectors right now. And I think that that's another difference this cycle is the defensive sectors like consumer staples, utilities, to a lesser extent, healthcare, uh, the old uh, telecommunication services sector. So media looks a little bit better than that, obviously, because it's more economically sensitive. And I'm gonna add in real estate in here. And we can talk about real estate more in depth if you'd like. But those sectors actually look quite expensive. And again, this is the opposite of the situation that we saw going into the financial crisis, where I would say that investors hadn't broadly gotten more defensive, you know, if you're using relative valuation. So with that, even if the news gets worse, and by the way, real GDP growth is in the bottom quartile of its historical range going back to 1960. So again, with that hard landing, soft landing debate, what you can think of, it's already kind of been quite poor, right? The question is, where does it go from here? So within that, we've already got defense quite expensive. And I think that a lot of the economically oriented sectors like consumer discretionary, technology, within materials, metals, and mining really stand out with that valuation sort of margin of safety. So I think that that's where the risk reward is much more positive. And I've talked a, a lot more about technology of late because technology earnings look now, finally, just like consumer discretionary earnings to me, they're pretty bad, right? So again, quantitatively, I measure it. I just have a screen that pops up, you know, and blinks to me every month that says, hey, they're in the bottom quartile. That bottom quartile reading is really important. Unless you think that it's somehow massively different this time than other either economic contractions or market drawdowns that we've saw, usually you have with 70% odds, actually odds on a go forward basis that you have some sort of rebound and the technology sector actually outperforms. And what has been keeping me on the fence more or less for technology has been that it hasn't really worked off all of its relative valuation that we saw coming out of the pandemic. But what you find is that's not really enough of the headwind if you can get a rebound out of that relative earnings growth. And I think that what we have seen over the last year, again, makes that more and more likely. How much more bad news do you want to sort of bet on? From these levels, you actually get more good news than bad news. That's true of like manufacturing PMI indices. That's true of real GDP. Like you, I think you have like maybe 10% odds of real GDP, or if you're willing to look over the course of the next year, getting worse, but usually it rebounds, even in quite bad situations, technology earnings as well. So we might actually see that in terms of relative earnings growth. Uh, and relative margins, which puts you know, technology now into a positive risk reward territory. And that looks exactly opposite of things like the defensive sectors that we talked about, and even energy that has quite strong fundamentals. So let, let's, let's go to the, uh, the top three and bottom three sectors, as we usually do on these calls. So um, the top three, uh, wh which are your top three right now? Yes, in some ways I just talked through them in the sense that it's consumer discretionary, which looks a lot like technology, which I just described, right? So they have really poor earnings. We know that the stocks discount those poor earnings well in advance. We've seen some of this play out in an equal weighted consumer discretionary index, but I think from a risk reward, there's still more in the tank um, on an equal weighted discretionary basis. And then two, technology, I sort of just explained that, materials and with specifically metals and mining within materials would round out the first three. So if you had to think about it from a sector perspective, it would be consumer discretionary, technology, and materials, pretty much in that order. Just, uh, do you, do you want, uh, just materials is interesting. Why, why, why materials? Yeah, so materials looks like consumer discretionary in the sense that we've already seen 
not quite as egregious as consumer discretionary technology, but margin declines. And the stocks are actually cheap almost however you measure them, which is pretty rare. Usually when fundamentals are already poor, you actually get that, you know, sort of cyclicality where you've seen multiple expansion. But I have the metals and mining sector on bottom quartile relative price to book, bottom quartile relative price to forward PE, bottom quartile relative free cash flow. So the stocks have stayed quite cheap, which is saying that they're not particularly optimistic. And when I look at this, that level of valuation support can actually offset a further deterioration. So maybe we're not all the way there in terms of fundamental declines and maybe operating margins can come down a little bit more. And I'm not saying that earnings expectations are gonna go up immediately, but what you see is based on these valuation levels, you have pretty good odds, 70 to 80% odds of the stocks outperforming the market despite the fact that the fundamentals aren't particularly good. And this is all about rotation. And I think that that's the part that is very uncomfortable for investors is that what has done well might be already priced for it. And even if it continues to do well, might see a rotation from a relative valuation perspective to sectors that have discounted the bad news more in advance. And I think that this is my main problem on the bottom three with, and I'm going to talk about energy, real estate, and let's do consumer stables. And I think that's pretty consistent, but I'm going to pick on energy in this one. Energy is literally which one of these does not look like the other one. It's a top quartile operating margins with data going back to the 1960s. And that sounds really good because fundamentals are really strong and the stocks are really cheap, no brainer for investment, right? But when you look back in history, this is not really a good time to invest historically. And it is because more often than not, when you have top quartile fundamentals, this is probably not the time to bet on future strong earnings growth. So what you have is, a, let's call it 70 to 80% likelihood that earnings will likely decline over the course of the next year. This doesn't have anything to do with you know, supply and demand. This isn't necessarily a bet on you know, $60 crude. But what you have is a situation where it's too good and it's likely to not persist. With that lack of persistence in terms of earnings growth, you would say, well, the stocks are cheap. So you know, metals and mining can offset stuff like that. So maybe energy can do the same. It just hasn't been the case historically. And I think that there's there it is strange to say that you know energy is one of the only se sectors that consistently gets trough multiples on trough earnings, and you can bet as an investor that it's going to be different this time because the cash flows are good. It's good the cash flows are good. I'm not complaining about the cash flows. It's just not been predicted historically. So I think a lot of the sort of defensive sectors, and I'm putting energy into that defensive sector camp because it's kind of what got us into this mess. Right, the spike in crude oil was correlated with inflation. It was correlated to negative real income growth for the consumer. It's not going to be the, the sector that leads us as inflation is decelerating and as crude has already already normalized. So again, on the bottom three, I would say energy, real straight real estate screens the exact same. I know I'm not really supposed to value real estate the way I do it, which is you know, you're supposed to normalize it on a cash flow basis. And, kinds of different acronyms so that you can't really compare to the S&P. But look, when I look at it on a relative forward PE basis and I look at it back to the 1960s, I get a monotonic distribution. So you don't really want to buy the sector when it's expensive. You really do want to buy it when it's cheap. 
right? And the other thing that's sort of a monotonic consistent correlation is you don't really want to buy it when returns are already strong, when business is good, kind of looks like energy. And we are, we're a top quartile ROEs, despite the fact that office is a subcomponent of the sector, kind of stinks. The rest of the sector is doing quite fine. It's likely to decelerate given what we've seen. But I think that even outside, like, will there be a CRE credit crisis? Will there be an issue? Listen, there there may well be, but I think even without that and without even betting on that, the risk reward for real estate looks skewed negative because it's expensive and fundamentals are in the top quartile. And it doesn't have to be massive downside leadership but this isn't a potential opportunity, at least for long-term investors. I mean, the chart's a little extended on a short-term basis. So I'm not saying that you couldn't see a bounce. You definitely could. I'm just not sure that it looks like leadership over the next year. And again, we'll end with sort of consumer staples looks quite similar. It's not as expensive as utilities. Uh, maybe I should have picked on utilities, but it's, you know, again, within that top quartile of its historic range. Uh, and when you sort of aggregate all the defensive sectors together, it's one of the most defensive ones. And actually, for not a lot of good reason relative to history, one of the reasons why consumer staples was so both defense and offense back in the 80s was because it was a growth sector. They actually had pricing power. So, you know, there weren't 18 toothpastes on the shelf and you could actually increase prices and consumers wanted the novel new product. Consumer staples is now no longer growth as defined by they're not growing EBITDA 10 percentage points anymore like they did in the 80s. And when you look at margins, we've actually had the weakest margins over the last decade, which is, again, the reversal that we saw when you actually had you know, increasing operating margins in the 80s. So consumer staples, I find expensive with very poor fundamentals, which seems to be a bad combination as well. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I just want to go back to the, this, the, what we were talking about before in the charts. Um, so if, if the bearish, uh, you know, sentiment right now indicates that, hey, stocks are actually going to outperform and you're feeling optimistic, are you looking at these charts to, you know, I guess, what will it take for the, for the bearish sentiment to turn more optimistic? And then what happens with equities when you see that change? Yeah, it's, that's, no, it's a great question because it's a tricky one. And I sort of alluded to this and the odds are not symmetrical meaning that you usually want to buy bearish indicators, but you don't always want to sell bullish indicators in the sense that they tend to provide below average returns, but not necessarily negative ones. So in terms of market timing, they only give you like a indicator, but I think what to watch instead of necessarily sentiment is credit. And that's another massive difference this cycle than we saw in the financial crisis, where credit was a great lead into both Bear Stearns and Lehman. What you saw was credit spreads increasing, which is you know, over the risk-free rate saying, hey, <laughs> there's a problem here. There might be a solvency problem, right? So that was both at a higher level going into Bear and then going. We're not seeing that same thing currently play out uh, with the credit markets being less concerned. It doesn't mean necessarily that things like that can happen. That certainly can change. Uh, and it's definitely the thing that I watch almost more than sentiment indicators. So, so far credit is fairly subdued and the credit markets are more often right than the equity markets. So that's a positive sign, but that's the one thing that I would be watching as it relates to, as we progress over the course of the year, when that bearish sentiment potentially plays off into a more optimistic profile. Uh, great, uh, Denise, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. 
If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.